Hey guys, I'm here with Ben Straight from the Nazarene Catholic channel. I came across you because of a recommendation from Drew the Catholic, who I recently interviewed and talking about your conversion story. I've been going through a little bit here and there, but I kind of wanted to hear it directly from you about your conversion story and um, dive into all of that. But first, Ben, how are you doing? And uh, maybe give a brief uh, introduction. Yeah, thank you. I'm doing pretty good. Um, just recently moved, so I have a new studio set up, so trying to get everything uh, looks good <laughs> fixed. Yeah, thank you. Uh, but yeah, so my channel is the Nazarene Catholic, and I'm a recent convert to Catholicism. I was an ordained pastor within the Church of the Nazarene, so that's sort of where my channel name gets its name. Uh, so <clears throat> yeah, it, it was uh, maybe not a typical conversion story. Obviously, everyone has their own unique story, uh, but I outlined it there. Uh, on my channel, and that's sort of how that channel started. And then uh, over time, um, I've started more talking about uh, the Church of the Nazarene and uh, trying to lean into, you know, where is there some overlap with Catholicism, where there's some differences, and trying to uh, sort of tap into both worlds. Uh, since I come from, you know, a Protestant tradition, but now I'm Catholic. Uh, and so just sort of wrestling with, you know, uh, my own background and understanding that better and helping other people to understand it better, uh, because I feel like um, the Church of Nazarene especially is a smaller denomination, but it is from a more Wesleyan holiness tradition, which, from what I've experienced within Catholicism, doesn't get a lot of attention. So I'm trying to at least help other people become more aware of what that is and, and what it's like. So that's a little bit of background on kind of what my channel is. Uh, and as for myself, uh, now obviously I'm not a pastor anymore. Uh, so a lot of what I do is uh, I'm, you know, just being a dad and I'm, you know, working and so, yeah, just having a pretty normal life. Yeah, I'm sure it's probably difficult. Is there uh, a brief, because it sounded like from what I've looked into, you, it sounded like it was a slow process for your conversion. Was it mm -hmm. because I'm assuming that you hear this a lot, it's because you already built this life around being a pastor and now it's kind of like up rooting all of that and that's probably got to be a, a little difficult for you yeah <laughs> a little bit um yeah it it was slow yeah in large part because i was a pastor so there was the whole you know my livelihood depended on the fact that i was protestant um but also it was slow just because you know it takes time to process uh some of the things of you know what catholicism teaches and um uh, for a while, and this partly goes to like the Church of Nazarene's own theology, there's a lot of stuff that the Catholic Church teaches that I could accept as a Nazarene and have no conflict with it. And so there wasn't like that um, tension of, well, if I believe this, then I have to convert. So a lot of the things I believed, I just sort of held uh, privately, even though I didn't preach on it or anything, just, you know, for the sake of my congregants, I didn't want to cause them any issues. Uh, because they weren't things that I saw as uh, necessary, but I could believe in myself. But then over time, I started to encounter more beliefs within Catholicism and more of the church's teachings that I uh, recognized were at least plausible, but they were more on issues that I couldn't reconcile with being Nazarene anymore. So for example, the belief in the Eucharist as the body, blood, soul, divinity of Christ. That was one I couldn't reconcile with being a Nazarene. So as time went on, there were those issues that started coming up that created more tension and then led to 
you know, well, I guess I have to convert. And then it's, then that began the whole process of, okay, but how do I do that? So yeah, that's, I guess, two parts of why it was a long process. Which is completely understandable. You have a, a life built around this one thing that you're doing, and now you're completely transitioning because it, it conflicts with what you're seeing and you're like oh uh it doesn't sort of correspond <laughs> with how i'm preaching now that's that or the, my denomination doesn't really correspond with oh this actually makes a little more sense now um yeah. but i like your idea of trying to bring more awareness to the the church of the nazarene denomination as a whole and maybe mm -hmm. talking about the, the overlaps with catholicism because you see this just the divergence of so many denominations and and you have this negative view of i don't want to say all protestants but a lot of more higher profile protestant pastors have this negative view of catholicism mm -hmm. so it's really good to see that you're bringing in this light of hey there are some overlaps where it kind of now opens the door a little bit to open up somebody's mind to say hey maybe i should uh, be a little more open to Catholicism. It's maybe not exactly how this preacher or pastor told me about this one sect of, uh, or one portion of history of how Catholicism was negative in this light. And it's, uh, you know, how yeah. all that, uh, the negative talk happened. So uh, for me, because I don't know too much about the Church of the Nazarene denomination, do you mind uh, giving an explanation of uh, a little bit of what it is and how are, what are the overlaps with Catholicism? How does it differ with some other Protestant texts? And uh, we can just dive into that. Sure. So um, I've actually started a series on my channel going over like the defining doctrine for the Church of the Nazarene, which is called Entire Sanctification. Uh, so if you want to go to my channel and look at that. Right now, the videos I have up on it are pretty dry, uh, but it's just necessary background for it. Um, but yes, the Church of Nazarene started in the early 1900s. It's an outgrowth of the American holiness movement. So there was a lot of emphasis on uh like uh, charismatic gifts speaking in tongues uh stuff like that um <clears throat> and it was also built on wesleyan theology although with some modifications because the american holiness movement had its own unique twist on things and at points would uh overtly disagree with john wesley so that's sort of how it started and then over time it sort of calmed down um, they're not as charismatic anymore they still recognize things like that like speaking in tongues like divine healings and miraculous things like that they really don't emphasize it um, they don't even really talk about it um, but it's still present there in the beliefs but its main emphasis is on holiness so like growing in grace becoming more and more like christ which is something i always admired about that uh, tradition so it wasn't a um, oh well, once you're saved you're fine uh, just sort of maintain that salvation it was always about growing more uh, a lot of emphasis on compassionate ministry. So actually living out the faith and being Christ in the world, uh, which I, again, always admired. And uh, those are the areas where I see the most overlap with Catholicism. I know I might be jumping ahead a little bit, uh, but um, those are also, also things that tend to make it pretty unique as a tradition. I know a lot of Methodism and Wesleyanism generally believe those things. So that I would say that's also where the Church of Nazarene shares in those traditions. So like if you go to a Methodist church, if you're familiar with Methodism or Wesleyanism or uh, Pentecostalism, even I like the theology, more of the theology behind Pentecostalism. 
you're pretty familiar already with the Church of the Nazarene at that point. Um, but I would say that's where it differs, though, from like Baptist, Reformed, uh, Lutheran, uh, because the Church of Nazarene rejects once saved, always saved. They believe you can lose your salvation. They put a lot of emphasis on free will, that you can, you need to choose to do the good, uh, even as difficult as it is. So it's not like worm theology, which is uh, a bit of a, uh, derisive way of talking about Lutheran theology, that, oh, we're just worms and we can never do anything good. Uh, Church of Nazarene says, no, we can do the good, um, but you have to choose to do the good and you have to allow yourself to work in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And so I would say that's where the Church of Nazarene is more unique among even evangelicalism or the more dominant forms of Protestantism within the United States, because they do have that more optimistic view of salvation uh, to the point where their doctrine of entire sanctification actually holds that uh, you can cooperate with God so much and he can transform you so much in your life that you actually can be conformed to the image of Christ on this side of the grave uh, or on this side of heaven. So it's a very optimistic view of grace, uh, which I would say is one of the defining aspects of that tradition. That, that, that's cool to see that, that slight um, overlap because it sounds like one of the, the videos you're talking about um, that if you just replaced what sanctification with justification, it kind of sort of aligns mm-hmm. somewhat in how Catholics view the whole, the whole process as a whole. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it's, it, it's really fascinating just it, just to see the overlaps in the sex and the, the different denominations. And I, I wonder what for you was the turning point, I guess, where you realized, was it the Eucharist that you mentioned, or was there something in particular that caused you to have this, like, maybe not light bulb, but kind of resulted in that starting of the tug of war of like, oh, maybe I need to convert now because it doesn't quite align. <laughs> what what exactly was that period or what was that thing that sort of sparked that? Yeah, so it was a lot of things that happened in thinking back, a lot of things, it feels like it happened all at once um, where some things I had questions on, some things I didn't. It just all of a sudden, a lot of things just clicked. Um, and it happened uh, around the time, so I was leading a young adult discussion, and someone had asked about the Apocrypha. Um, of course, they were talking about the New Testament uh, Apocrypha, like the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that. But in preparation for that study, I looked more into like the early councils, like Hippo and Carthage and Rome. And what I came to realize was uh, the Deuterocanon was recognized as divinely inspired scripture. And so my background is biblical studies. So I have a bachelor's in that. And it just blew me away. I was like, how am I just now learning this? Like, it's so clear right there. Like, you see it right there. Um, And even the writings of the early church fathers, um, none of them attested to a Protestant Old Testament canon. Um, They would include some of the Deuterocanon, or they would omit parts of what's in the Protestant Old Testament canon. So... Um, that for me was a real shock because I was like, like that is uh, evidence that to me, I couldn't work my way, way around. So I was like, okay, clearly I'm in a wrong tradition here. <laughs> like something has gone awry and 
like how can I hold to solo scriptura if I don't even have the right scriptura? Um, mm -hmm. It's sort of how I, I processed it. So, and then around that same time too, I just uh, became convinced of uh, the teaching on the Eucharist. So in the Church of the Nazarene, communion and baptism are the two sacraments, but it's not believed generally, though you do have some people who hold to a more Baptist view of the sacraments, but it's not believed that they're merely memorial or merely symbolic. Uh, the way I was taught and the way I taught people was these are a means of grace. They're not reflective of grace that happened in the past. You are participating in God's work in your life by participating in the sacrament itself. And beyond that, it's, it's really vague sort of what that means. But essentially, it's just, well, God is doing something unique here that we should participate in, and that's pretty much it. What exactly is that unique thing? I don't know. But, it, there, but God's working in it. So there is a belief that uh, a very high view of the sacraments, I guess I would say, um, where it's more than merely a memorial, that there's something active happening there. But there's no real language within the denomination to clarify what that is. And even what I just said is somewhat in the official teaching of the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, but even with what I said, as short as it was, uh, goes further than what the official teaching is. So there's a lot of room for interpretation. Um, but I had done, uh, around this time again, thinking back, at least one or two sermons related to uh, communion. Because uh, I was followed the lectionary, and like one of the passages was on uh, Elijah when he's in the wilderness, and he's fed or he's given like bread and water from an angel. And then there was another passage on, I don't remember, but uh, I'm sure John six was in there too, but <laughs> it was that mixed with my studying more seriously. Some of the beliefs of Catholicism, I remember sitting in church and I wasn't the lead pastor, thankfully. Uh, so I could sort of wheeze my way out of this, but we were having communion that Sunday and I just sat there and I just felt totally convicted that what I was looking at up there, I was like, that's not Eucharist. It's like, that's just juice and some wafers. And it wasn't like uh, I was repulsed by it. I was repulsed in the idea that I could participate that anymore personally. Like I wasn't offended. Other people were. It, it was very personal to me. And so I just say that to say like, because uh, I know some people would you know, have a more mm -hmm. negative view towards other people doing that. But I'm like, no, it's just personal to me. Sorry. I sort of so, interrupted you. No, you're fine. It's, it's did the whole, I guess, diving more into the the Eucharist as a whole was it the idea that it wasn't an individual that was blessing the Eucharist through that word that was given the the hierarchical ability to it. Was that sort of in your mind, or was it just we were not, they were not doing it properly, like saying the, the words, for instance? Was it as deep as uh, maybe the transition of the apostles? Um, Hmm. what is it i want to say seniority but that's not the right the right oh, term yeah. but but yeah you know what i mean is it not mm -hmm. um it was because it it didn't feel like this was passed down or is it just because the way because i don't know how they were theoretically doing the eucharist was it just not in a, a reverent manner what was going through your mind causing that discomfort yeah, so I had studied things like apostolic succession and stuff leading up to this. Um, but in that moment, none of that came in my head. It was much more of like a just a raw emotion, I guess I could say. So the the only thing I remember thinking was just that's not the Eucharist, and I and I need the Eucharist. 
Like it was, mm. it was very much like I, I like I need it. It was like this, <laughs> um, very strong desire uh, for it. Like I had been, you know, without food for a week or something, uh, which is why I remember it because it was such a strong uh, sense. Um, but no, it, it, yeah, it really didn't have anything to do with. Well, he's not a priest. Uh, he's not doing the prayers correctly because I still wasn't very familiar with any of that. Um, like anamnesis and epiclesis and all that. But so no, it was, it was much more of a unrefined just sense. Mm. I guess sometimes God speaks to you in, in that way. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's also fascinating just hearing different people's conversion stories, how it, it's just like, it's such a variety of how people sort of start realizing the truth. And it's like one person, it's one doctrine, another person's another one, but yours was just the deuterocanonical uh, just because that was your background. Mm-hmm. It's so when you're going into Bible studies, did they, did they not talk about this while you're, you were learning and going through that process? Did they not talk, mention them or did they kind of uh, sidestep it or mm-hmm. disparagingly like, Oh, we don't do those because they're, um, they're they're preaching or they have things that are contrary to to our beliefs yeah so well for a long time i was the one leading bible studies like that (laughs) so a lot of that's on me but i like i took classes and we talked about the councils so like i didn't have an issue with like the history of the church like that's how i first learned about hippo and carthage in the late fourth century and how that's where the canon was um uh oh what's the term not determined not not recognized sorry so that's where that's where the biblical canon was recognized but for some reason um i I, the only thing i can guess is bias is my Mm -hmm. professors just never pointed out yeah in these councils they also recognize these books like that was never discussed which just shocks me because my professors were very good like very solid theologians they had very academic backgrounds like they know this material really well i don't know why they just skipped over that stuff especially when we're talking explicitly about those instances where you would like it's right there like plain as day like they list out these are the books we recognize and they i don't know why we just never uh were told that and even the material we looked at um like the book resources so stuff by alistair mcgrath for example um he doesn't he doesn't mention that um because i went back and looked at it later and i was like does he even talk about this nope uh so when it comes to at least in my experience when it comes to talking about how the canon developed um that part of history is really glossed over which looking back and trying to find you know where in my resources did i miss this it's because it's not there like they'll talk about those councils they'll talk about that time period but they won't go into detail which i thought was kind of fishy um, they'll just sort of be like, oh, yeah, the canon was discussed, and then it was recognized at these councils, and then it was closed. And they just move on. Um, it's like, well, like there's more to the story than that. Um, but yeah, does that after frustrate that, you looking back on that? Yeah, it does. It does. Um, because if, uh, like at the very least, I would think, okay, like even if you disagree with what those councils say, you can make an argument for why. Um, the Protestant version is better. Like you could talk about the Masoretic text. You could talk about the Barcaco revolt and how that sort of led to it. Um, like you could make, you know, an argument if you want to. Um, 
like what James White would say or what Gavin Ortland would say. But you can't just ignore blatant evidence that's there, especially if you're already pointing to the source itself. Um, I just think that's a bit dishonest. And it, it kind of shows maybe a little bit of an insecurity in whether or not, you know, you believe this is true or not. Like if you if you want to disagree with the council, then why even bring up the council at all? I guess. Um, so yeah, I have a lot of mixed feelings on on all, <laughs> all of that. Um, but yeah, so it was pretty shocking when I when I learned that, and it was especially difficult because I had started teaching on like how to study scripture, and that was one of the things I covered in a lot of the material that I would put together is how the canon developed, and I would mention those councils too. And it wasn't until I actually went back and wanted to refine my sources and understand the material better that I realized, oh, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't find any evidence for the the. Oh, I'm blanking. How many books now? Thirty-seven books of the Old Testament. Is that right? It doesn't that doesn't seem right? Yeah, thirty-seven books of the Old Testament. 29 of the New Testament. Okay, I got to look this up now. It's bugging me. I'm sorry. It's okay. Just for people that are watching, uh, Ben and I, it, it's a late and we're both dads. So we've gone through <laughs> some stuff and it's our, our brains sometimes at night as a parent, it becomes mush and I completely understand. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I won't take up any more time. People can look it up. Oh, regardless, the Protestant canon, I just couldn't find evidence for it. And that was I just know it's 66 for, for Protestants, 73 for Catholic, uh, yeah. however the math shakes out. I'm mental math at this time of night just doesn't work for me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's really fascinating. It kind of ties into what I want to talk to you about, about next because you're leading Bible studies mm -hmm. and you have these conflictions. And one of the the fascinating things that you, you mentioned herein briefly, but I've seen in other interviews, is that you the way you went about preaching – uh, as a pastor was you actually went with the 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 standard uh teachings the the readings that the the catholics put out because mm -hmm. maybe they're internally you were drawn to it and I, and maybe dive into why were you drawn to it and how did that uh, what led you to do that yeah so while i was at college i knew people in my courses uh i was actually part of a preaching program where like you'd go out every other weekend or so and you'd preach at different churches um, and so me and several of my other friends, like we developed our own techniques before we even graduated on, you know, what's the best way to formulate a sermon? How do you structure this out? Um, you know, like what does weekly preaching look like and how do you approach that? And someone I knew talked about the lectionary and how they followed that. I was like, well, you know, this is something that's very ancient, you know, following certain prescribed readings throughout the year and it goes on a rotation. And at first I really didn't like that idea. Uh, but then as I began to preach more, I was like, actually, that's very helpful because <laughs> then I don't have to figure out what to preach on. <laughs> I just, there's the text and there you go. Mm -hmm. So I encountered that. I started following the the Episcopal Church's lectionary because I realized the Catholic one um, had readings from the Deuterocanon. And mm. I was like, yeah, I'll just stick with the more Protestant one. Um, although I wrote a devotional one time following the lectionary and someone caught me because I included a passage from the expanded form of Daniel, the story of Susanna. And I loved it. I was like, oh, this is a great story. I don't know why I just never recognized this before. And someone <laughs> said, oh, that's actually from the, the, the deuterocanonical version of Daniel. And I was like, oh, why? Like, it's so great. Why do we not have this in our Bible? But regardless, um, yeah, so I started doing that. And I learned through following the lectionary as a pastor 
how forming it can be. Like just following those readings is spiritually forming for me as a pastor, but also for my people in the church, because it follows certain seasons. So for example, um, there was, I can't remember exactly, but there was one day that was a recognized uh, feast day, I guess you would say. Um, and it fell on the same day that year as some other uh, Hallmark holiday. I don't know if it was Mother's Day or Father's Day or something. And so I, I followed what was in the lectionary instead. And some people were a little upset that I did that. But that was an example to me of, uh, you know, even something that to us seems as simple as what is like the calendar dates and the holidays and seasons that we recognize. That itself can be very formational. And so I tried to be intentional of helping my people recognize, you know, we are a part of the church. We have our own seasons. We have our own holidays. And these are things that we need to recognize because they're very helpful for us. Because as you go throughout the year, you're going to encounter things that you wouldn't encounter in the culture. So like the like Pentecost Sunday, which I know is a big one for a lot of people. Some, a lot of churches don't recognize Pentecost Sunday or Trinity Sunday or Christ the King Sunday. I'd never been in a service that recognized Christ the King Sunday. But then I started recognizing it in my church and having sermons on that. And All Saints Day uh, was another one that I started doing. And it actually became one of my favorite days of the year. Um, and so, uh, so there's a certain discipline involved there, but there's also a lot of really good stuff that can come out of it, especially for myself as a pastor. It forced me to preach on passages that I otherwise would never even touch. Like there was a lot of weeks where I would be doing sermon prep and just like, I don't even know what to do with this passage. Um, but I just sort of forced myself like, no, I need to preach on this. And so it gave me a deeper appreciation for scripture uh, and what scripture teaches. Uh, because it sort of forced me to to really wrestle with things that I otherwise would rather not wrestle with, like certain passages that I'm like, that's kind of uncomfortable, but I, I got to wrestle with it. Yeah, that, that's normally the, the sign of growth is when you're doing stuff that makes you uncomfortable, that normally leads to you, I guess, growing in that uh, area. And hmm. it's uh, what you mentioned kind of popped a question in my head. Do maybe your denomination did y'all recognize saints like how how did that work because you obviously you're gonna have the the the, the main apostles being saints but mm -hmm. how, how about the, the the rest of them <laughs> yeah so we don't recognize saints in the way that catholics do um or oh my goodness I'm like in the mindset of being Nazarene again. With how I just said that, uh, Church of Nazarene doesn't recognize saints the way that Catholics do. So we they Catholics, take a, yeah, we Catholics, I Catholic now. Um, they take a much more like general Protestant view. So like even the Apostles' Creed, it talks about the communion of saints. They recognize that as much more general, right? As though like uh, anyone who's a part of the church is a saint, whether they're a part of the church triumphant in heaven or part of the church. Uh, militant here on earth, uh, we're all saints. So very generic, uh, general understanding. So when, so when it comes to All Saints Day, what I experienced and what I did, and what I'd seen other people do, was uh, anyone who had passed away in the faith uh, would be recognized that particular day. So um, I, 
and there weren't any uh, prayers involved, like asking for their intercession or anything. It was more just a, a reminder of those who had passed on, reflecting on the example that they left and encouraging us to, you know, sort of do the same. Um, but no particular attention to like any one individual, uh, like during the service. And certainly uh, not the same feel as like if a Catholic were to recognize All Saints Day. For example, like when they're talking about, oh, you mean Saint so and so and all these other particular saints and like their lives, like, no, mm -hmm. that wasn't there. Gotcha. So, where were the conflicts? You know, you, you have these overlap, overlapping views. Um, the Eucharist being one where you're saying that was sort of conflicting. Was there, are there like main ones? Um, so, it sounds like it, with the, intercessory of saints be one of those conflicts that's a, that's a usual one um but where were like the the major conflicts and maybe stumbling blocks for you where it was just very difficult for you or maybe not very difficult but it took you a bit to wrap your mind around it yeah that's a good one um one of them would be the the ppc actually wasn't as big of an issue as i initially thought it would be like early on in my questioning um, I just sort of assumed with my background, like, oh, I can never be Catholic because of the Pope. But then as time went on, a lot of stuff surrounding that started to make more sense. So when I actually had to confront that particular teaching, I just sort of was in a position where I was like, oh, okay, I can accept that because it actually, it makes sense. Because I'd studied a lot of other stuff around it and I'd heard other people explain what exactly the teachings are. Uh, for me, experientially at least the most difficult thing was apostolic succession and the validity of ordinations and the invalidity of ordinations so i actually reached a point where uh, i really struggled personally with the idea that my ordination is not valid because the mm. people who ordained me are not validly ordained themselves and actually you can trace um, people in the church of the nazarene aren't too interested in tracing ordination, but there is a way you can do it because the denomination is young enough. You can sort of follow that enough. But the issue is um, I started doing that because a part of me was like, oh, maybe I am validly ordained because, you know, my district superintendent or general superintendent was ordained by these people. They can go back to the founder of the Church of Nazarene, and then they're tied to the Methodist movement. So then they're tied to John Wesley, which would be Anglican, and then Anglicanism, Church of England, was a part of, uh, was sort of a breaking off from the Catholic Church. So yeah, like my ordination can be traced back that way. But I was seeing ordination more as like a, a pedigree that's just sort of passed on genetically, like from that sense. Uh, where like outside of an authority structure, if someone's ordained, then they can ordain people and it's just valid that way. But wrestling with the idea of the fact that John Wesley, when he ordained people, he actually did so invalidly because he was explicitly disobeying his bishops. Um, that for me was a, a difficult one to wrestle with. Um, and actually when I got ordained, uh, within my denomination. That was shortly after I'd come to recognize, yeah, these people can't actually ordain me. Mm. They, they can call it ordination, but it's just uh, an organizational recognition. There, there's no conferring of any supernatural charism or anything happening here. So that so, was a struggle for me. So I, I'm guessing it, it sounds like the struggle was more of 
less of the, the Catholic teaching maybe. And it's more of just internally you're now, it's like, oh, well, I'm not legitimate, so to speak. And that, that probably brings up some negative motions mm. personally. I'm like, well, crap, <laughs> what, do, what, do I, <laughs> what do I do now? And that, that's probably difficult to wrestle with because then if internally, if you accept and, and accept the the Catholic Church, and you you start that process, does that mean that in, that invalidates all the things that you you did, right? But I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think it did. But it, it's you're just not ordained in the the correct sense. But you you probably still done good things in in the end. So I'm sure that was probably. Uh, internally a little bit of a, a wrestling match that you had to yeah. to go go through and how long were you as an ordained pastor where you were still doing this because you you're getting ordained but you already now know that oh this is invalid but now you're still i'm guessing that having that tug of war between yeah so i was ordained for almost two years by the time i converted um and I think technically I'm still ordained because I surrendered my credentials. Is it surrender or is it retire or is it resign? It might be resign, the technical term within the Church of Nazarene. Well, I did whatever. I think it's resign. Um, I resigned my credentials, but it was never confirmed properly. Like the way it's supposed to be done is if someone surrenders or, or retires or whatever does, whatever they do with their credentials. Uh, then at the next, next district assembly, those decisions are finalized, but my name was never brought up at the next assembly. So I think I'm still technically ordained in the church of Nazarene uh, because they never finalized it. So that's sort of fun, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so it was a year and a half from the time I was ordained. And actually two weeks before I was ordained, I told my wife, I said, I think I'm going to become Catholic. So it's great timing. <laughs> how how did your your wife handle all of this? Because that's got to be a little mm-hmm. bit of a, a difficult. Yeah. So she. Yeah. So she's handled it with a lot of grace. Um, she's not on the same page, which is you know respectable. Um, and I respect where she's at. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll just put it that way. Gotcha. Um. So how is the, so you decide that you're starting to think you're having those conflicts um you decide to join the church you join the church yay you welcome home and now how has it been treating you because you hear a lot of times where you the uh, conversion stories they talk about the whole process of converting and then kind of end there but mm-hmm. i'm kind of curious how has it been treating you i'm sure there's probably ups and downs with being a part of the Catholic faith. And I'm sure there's plenty of Catholics out there that'll hear this and be like, yep, I, I completely agree with <laughs> some of the, the difficulties that uh, our uh, areas are, are, are um, pastors or not pastors. I, I This is late and I, I can't think of the word. I, <laughs> I'm okay. blanking. Um, parishes. That's the word. Okay. But, <laughs> but how that's um, been, how has it all been, treating you yeah it's been good it is a totally different culture in ways that i'd never recognized until after i was confirmed so like i remember after i was confirmed i would ask my uh sponsor i still ask him questions i'd be like so 
in the sanctuary, like, what is this thing that's there? Like, where they have all the candles in front of, like, a statue? Like, what is that? And, like, they'd have to explain it to me. And then they'd correct me and say, well, that's actually not the sanctuary, that's the nave. Like, what? Because in Protestantism, like, whatever the big room is, where everyone gathers, like, that's the sanctuary. It's like, oh, no, the sanctuary is just this space up front. Uh, where Protestants would call it the platform, but actually that's the sanctuary. And they use terms like the ambo. And I'm like, what's the ambo? And like, it's just all these little things that you just don't know that it feels like you're just in a totally different world. And then learning about all these things, like I knew about the rosary. Um, I knew sort of about the liturgy of the hours, but then there is a way that lay people do the liturgy of the hours. It's a shortened version. And then there's also like all these novenas, like what's all that about? Like there is just so much that I'm still learning. That's a lot of fun, mm-hmm. but it's just, it can be a bit overwhelming at times, just how uh, expansive it is. Like I remember I would lead membership classes for people who wanted to join the church of the Nazarene. And I could cover everything we needed to know in three sessions. Uh, but after like several months of RCIA, I felt totally unprepared for just how much <laughs> Catholic stuff is out there. Uh, like the catechism itself is the size of my Bible. <laughs> it's like, it's a lot of stuff. So uh, that's been fun, but, uh, you know, a bit uh, challenging. It's also interesting being a layperson again, uh, which is humbling. Uh, but also kind of refreshing because I don't have people asking me all the time, oh, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Uh, no one really cares about my opinion, <laughs> which uh, I, I kind of like. Like I was at a, I was helping out with a, in uh, sort of a group where people are curious about the church. Uh, this was fairly recently. And someone had asked a question related to the Old Testament, which was a, personal passion of mine when I was doing biblical studies. And it was not something that I had actually uh, studied about. It had to do with like the late Bronze Age period and how, you know, you read in scripture, different elements of that. Anyways, so someone asked the question and, um, and someone gave, you know, a pretty good answer and response. Then I just wanted to add to it. And I was like, yeah, that's true. And then also this, this, this. And then that person just said, oh no, that's wrong. And just moved on. And I was like, not used to that. And I was like, geez, I guess this is what it's like now when you're not a pastor. No one really cares what you have to say. (laughs) So uh, so that's been humbling. Um, But overall, it's been good. Um, Just learning different things, learning the rhythms. Um, Like Holy Days of Obligation is still something I'm trying to get used to. Like going to Mass during the week. Like, how do you how do you do that? Mass is just for Sunday. Um, Mm. So, yeah. And like just different practices, like things that you do during Epiphany, like, you know, blessing your house and stuff like that. Um, so it, it is very much just a totally different culture. But overall, I would say it's, I guess, maybe a sort of cliche way of putting it is, yeah, the Catholic Church is treating me great, uh, treating me great because I'm, actually, I'm receiving the sacraments, um, like I'm receiving the, the medicine of immortality uh, every time I go to Mass. Um, so long as I confess mortal sin. But um, yeah, overall, I, I feel like I'm just sort of ignored, <laughs> which is which is not a complaint. It's actually, again, kind of refreshing because I was so used to uh, just sort of being available 24-7 to do anything. And it was always expected that if there's an event going on at the church, like I would be there. 
so it's kind of nice to um, just sort of be back in this perspective, I guess. I don't really know exactly how to explain that, so I apologize. But it's, um, yeah, it's just a, it's a totally different world. Well, especially since, um, you know, leaving Protestantism, like I couldn't be a pastor anymore, and my ordination wasn't valid, so I couldn't be a priest. So, and I'm also married, um, so I couldn't even enter the priesthood. And so there was just like, everything's new for me, like not just with Catholicism, like everything, like I'm working in a totally different area where I'm not preaching or anything or doing counseling. Um, so like, yeah, just everything's different. My social circle is all different. Um, a lot of my relations are all different because everything, like my entire world was within Protestantism. So now that's entirely shifted. So yeah. So I guess in some sense, it's hard to answer that question of uh, how is the Catholic Church treating me? Because I'm like, I don't know. Everything's different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's hard to know, like, this is Catholic and this isn't. Um, but I would say, uh, and I apologize for rambling. Uh, You're but fine. I just, uh, so shortly after I converted, uh, my son was born and then he passed away after four days because of a really rare genetic condition. And I would say it was a it was a time when I felt very much confirmed that this was the right decision to become Catholic, because while he was in the hospital, uh, he was baptized by one of our deacons, and then the priest came and he was confirmed. He was offered the anointing of the sick. Um, I sometimes joke that if he had been in the hospital any longer, he would have been ordained a priest by the, by the time we <laughs> left, because uh, he was just getting all these sacraments. Um, but just the way all of that was handled was just so uh, beautiful and not, um, how do I put it? Not ad hoc, but, um, oh, sheesh, like improvised or anything. Like oh, all yeah. of it felt it very serious. intentional. Yeah, very serious, very intentional, very respectful. Like this is a serious thing that's happening. Um, and even like, you know, the baptism when he's there in the NICU, it was like a very serious moment, but very, you know, a very beautiful moment after he passed away, everything was done beautifully. Like the funeral mass was wonderful. Um, and again, everything was just so great. Um, even like the cemetery where he's buried, it's a Catholic cemetery because I'm Catholic, so we could bury him there. Uh, and just how Catholics treat their cemeteries even was uh, I mean, it's something that <clears throat> I don't wish on anyone, but if you are ever looking at a cemetery, uh, that's just one thing that is just another thing you got to figure out when someone passes away suddenly. And we had to figure that out. Well, where is he going to be buried? And that's a stressful thing. Well, if you go to a, if you can go to a Catholic cemetery, you, you know that that area is always going to be treated respectfully. The grave plots are always going to be respected. Uh, whereas like a city cemetery, you know, depending on who's running it, it could be taken care of. It could not be. They could have really strict rules. They could have really lenient rules. Like it's all this stuff. And um, even just, I know some people would disagree with this and that's fine. Um, but I would, I would disagree with them. But even just recognizing that because he was baptized, um, recognizing like he is absolutely in heaven interceding for us now. Like just that assurity that it's not, well, it's just this priest's opinion, but he's respected so we can trust it. It's like, no, that is the teaching of the church. And you can trust that. 
Um, so again, like all this stuff that is very well thought out, uh, very well uh, practiced was in that aspect of further confirmation that, yeah, this was absolutely the right decision to do. So to answer your initial question of how the Catholic Church has been treating me, I would say in that regard, it's, it proves that the Catholic Church is, is a great place to be. Um, yeah. It felt like home, I guess, in, in that instance. Yeah, I can imagine because priests have probably gone through a lot of stuff like that, which is just heartbreaking mm. to say the the very least. And but the the fact that they go through it so methodically and so they take it so seriously because that that's the truth that they've been given this ability to do this and they mm. they handle it with such grace and being able to do that that's just. It's sad, obviously, and I'm sure it was difficult, but also there's a little beauty in that, too, with uh, being able to be a part of that family that now your your child is a part of now because mm. of uh, you coming into the church. And maybe that's why you were meant to come into the church, because God knew. Who knows? God's will, right? Um, yeah. But um, I'm glad you're here. And um I don't even know where to go from there because that's just such a touching story and sad too. But yeah, because I don't want to go into like these more routes of like, oh, let's talk where <laughs> anti-Catholic sentiment comes yeah. from in Protestantism because that was such a beautiful um, story. And th th maybe let's just talk about like the the seriousness of like the sacraments as a whole and hmm. how you are now. Now that you're a part of the, the Catholic Church, and looking back on yourself, do you do you realize like do you have these thoughts of oh wow I've been really been starved of all of this uh, I've been getting baptism but maybe not as uh, I've, I've been missing out on all these other sacraments here and how hmm. how have you been processing that Yeah so. So that really led me to Catholicism because uh, while I was a Protestant, that was something that really frustrated me, or I guess I would say it's really started to frustrate me because while I was a pastor, I recognized, um, you know, things like this, <clears throat> they need to be taken seriously. They need to be treated reverently because uh, just in doing that, um, well, I guess I would say one thing I learned when I was uh, studying to be a pastor was uh, Good theology is good counsel. And so I always took it very seriously when I recognized people going through a difficult time or when, you know, just in general, just throughout life, um, it's good to practice the faith well and in a, uh, like a, an articulate manner because good theology is good counsel, right? So paying attention to how do we do things. Um, what words do we say? What mannerisms do we do? How do we approach whatever it is we're doing, even if it's just like a Sunday morning service or whether it's a baptism or communion or whether it's just praying over someone? Like how you approach that is informing belief. It is informing faith. And you need to do that well. And you need to make sure that that the theology that you're communicating is true. Um, otherwise, it's just going to 
create confusion. And again, because good theology is good counsel, you want to make sure it's it's true theology because it's going to be the most impactful thing you can do for someone. So I took that very seriously. But what I found while I was a pastor is I didn't have access within my own denomination to resources that helped me with that. So I had to keep going outside of my own tradition. So when I would come across these, you know, like Christ the King Sunday or All Saints Day, uh, All Saints Day particularly, I felt was uh, one of my favorite uh, Sundays because it was a Sunday where we explicitly confront death, which I've always felt is something that is very lacking in, in Western culture and something that I took uh, a particular interest in, in helping people process and work through that. Um, but my tradition, you know, we don't talk about that. We don't have anything for that. And so I'd have to go outside. Like I said, I followed the Episcopal Church's lectionary because the Church of Nazarene doesn't have one. Um, and so I had to look at like uh, the Book of Common Prayer, which is uh, Methodist. At least that's why I went through to get, you know, a Book of Common Prayer it was like their particular one. Or maybe it's Anglican. I don't know. But it wasn't Nazarene. This was sort of the point. <laughs> so I would always be borrowing from these other traditions to help inform and shape my own approach to ministry, especially as it came to things like funerals or uh, sacraments or weddings or whatever it was. And that really frustrated me because even though I had a pretty strong background in theology and in scripture and, and stuff like that, I knew that I didn't know everything. And so I always had this lingering fear in the back of my mind. Okay, is there something in the material that I'm borrowing that is like inconsistent with the Church of Nazarene's beliefs? So because I really was playing this game of a la carte Christianity, and I never liked that, but I was sort of forced into a position where I had to. Um, either that or just make it all up myself, which sometimes I did, uh, which I didn't like doing either because I'm just me. Um, the church is 2000 years old. Surely there's some resources out there. I can, I can <laughs> sort of, <laughs> you know, gain some insight from, uh, so in that regard, I actually started looking more towards Catholic sources because at the very least I recognized pretty early on, um, if nothing else, Catholics are consistent. So I'm not going to come across, you know, material that is uh, like if it's in the catechism, which is actually for a lot of my uh, Bible studies um, and even in preparation for doing sacraments or something. Sometimes I would just look at the Catholic catechism because I just I liked how articulate it was. And, I, and because it was so articulate, I could tell the things that I disagreed with and the things I agreed with. So it made it very easy to navigate through that theological lens of my own tradition. Um, and I would just borrow from it because I was like, this is just a great resource. Uh, it's very well thought out. And the things that it considers, the things that it reflects on, the things that it communicates are just, uh, you could tell there's a lot of years put into the ideas behind this. Um, it's brilliant. And so that was one aspect that led me to the Catholic Church because I found it was deficient in my own tradition were these um, ceremonies and and things like that because I just became so frustrated that like we need something there has to be something more than than this uh, and I just started getting uh, well me and my friends too because we 
when I was in school, the group of friends I had, we were very sacramental in our theology. <clears throat> and so we just became incredibly frustrated with sort of the lack of reverence that tends to fall into uh, like the sort of generic evangelical traditions of uh, like, for example, I went to a church not long ago around where I live and what they did for communion is they had those little like communion to go cups, like the mm -hmm. waivers on the top layer. And then you have like the stale grape juice on the bottom and they had them like in the seat, which was fine. Um, but then the only thing they did was at the end of the service, they just said, yeah, this is how we remember who we are. And then that was it. Like they, they didn't walk you through like the bread and the cup. They did. All they said was, this is how we remember who we are. And this is our story. I don't even think they said you can take communion now. Like that was literally it. And then people just started opening their things. And I was like, what on earth is this? Like, can we <laughs> even call this a sacrament? Like my Protestant background is, is heartbroken right now because this is just disgusting. Um, but that's what a lot of my background uh, sort of was when it approached death, uh, when it approached, you know, more uh, solemn occasions or even, you know, different parts of the church. It was just sort of just, eh, whatever. Not a whole lot of thought put into it. So, so yeah, I was very grateful when I, at the very least, started learning about what the Catholic Church teaches and what it practices uh, with this stuff. And it's just, it's very refreshing to know, like, yeah, it seems at the very least they're doing something right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a well, well said. Um, do you think with the, how serious sacraments are taken, do you think that's a, an avenue where you can start bringing Protestants home to the church? Do you think that's uh, maybe an area where people realize that they're lacking something of the seriousness? Because I've been to, uh, in the past, the fair share of megachurches with those cups in the, I've been to those before, and it just feels like a lot of the preaching is just, because um, I've talked to a, a previous pastor who converted kind of like yourself, but how it's very worldly or they're trying to skirt the line to make sure they don't upset somebody or upset people because they don't want to lose people from going whereas uh, the catholic church uh, it they just do their thing they have all these sacraments and i love the fact that uh, in a catholic mass it's like the homily is not that long <laughs> usually <laughs> uh and but the the worship is the main part of it, and that's what, mm. what I, I love about it, whereas in Protestant churches, is a lot of times it's mainly focused on the scripture and the, the, the teaching as a whole, and mm. uh, I don't know if you can really call any of that worship, so to speak. You may I don't know if you have a different opinion, but normally— um, when you look at like worship and how they did it in the Old Testament, it's it, it was very particular with, with how they they would do certain things. And I don't want to get too much into that. But do you yeah. think the sacraments are where we can draw people in? Say, hey, this is what we have. This is because that's even if a parish is really not great, at least the very least they have the Eucharist, which <laughs> I think very least is the wrong term, but at most <laughs> that is what what they have. Yeah. Uh, so to answer one of the, the previous things you said very briefly, when it comes to like, we'll do Protestants. Like, is that really worship? One of the things, I don't know if I heard it 
or if I just thought it, I probably just heard it. I don't want to give myself too much credit. Um, was when you go to a Protestant service, that's a really, really good um, act of veneration. Uh, but it's not worship, so-called, because worship requires sacrifice, and they don't. That doesn't happen. So I would just throw that in there. So I guess that would be my perspective on that, because I know you asked. Um, but actually, yeah, when it comes to the mass. This is something that I've found personally in my experience, but also just with other people that I know who are Protestant, that that in itself is very attractive to people who come from more low church backgrounds. Like that itself is uh, a form of evangelicalism, just performing, well, not performing, uh, but practicing, you know, worship and the mass. Um, like I remember I went into... Like, it doesn't even have to be intentional. Um, actually, the Mass doesn't even have to be going on. Just encountering Catholic spirituality itself, uh, I found to be very inspiring to a lot of people and very drawing to people who are Protestant. So I had several friends visit me, and they're all, um, you know, pastors or ministers of some background. Like, we all went to school together. They've all been ordained at some point, I, I think. One of them might not have been, but they were pastors. Um, but I went to, uh, we walked into a Catholic church near where I live and there was no one else there. And they just, uh, like you could smell like the incense, like the mm. frankincense in the church that they used. And, uh, like you had the stained glass windows and there was a, a high altar in the back. I think that's what it's called. The high altar. Um, and you know, some statues and they just, just kind of stood there. One of them just sort of sat down. I think they might have started praying, but they just sort of articulated to me in their own unique way. Like, it's just nice just to be in a place like this. And one of my friends actually looked around. And he said, this is something that I so wish we had. He said, because everything in here, even just the architecture, everything feels intentional. He says, I just wish we had this. Did you tell him he could have it? You just, <laughs> just need to come home. <laughs> yeah, we've had those conversations, um, but I try not to push him too hard. Um, I actually don't know, know if I try to push him because he, he said to me um, he doesn't want to look into Catholicism because he knows he'd probably convert. Um, and I, I, you know, him and I are pretty close, so I know, you know, where he's coming from with that. But, um, but yeah, like even that, like even just some people I know, they just enjoy going with me to mass and just being there because there's just something unique there, even if they don't recognize what it is. And you could say, well, it's because the, the real presence of Christ is there. Even if mass isn't happening, he's there in the tabernacle and that's what people find attractive. And I would say, yes, yeah, certainly that's a part of it. Uh, sure. I would say that's maybe a supernatural aspect of it, but even on a more base sensational aspect like what people encounter when they go into a Catholic church is wholly unique from what you would find at your average, you know, low church Protestant thing, whatever it is, gathering service, or even just going into a Protestant church. Uh, it's just a totally different atmosphere. And there's something about that that I think speaks to uh, a desire, maybe even a need a lot of people have that they're finding cannot be fulfilled within uh, their own Protestant 
circles, especially with, with my background, which tends to be very low church. Yeah. yeah. So I'd say that is, yeah, very, a very powerful thing. Yeah. Beauty, I think, is a very good evangelical method. And a lot, uh, you just go to any of the old Catholic cathedrals and just let that do the talking for the most part. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it, it just goes to show like the, the reverence that it has for the church as a whole has for the whole service and there's beauty in not just the church as a, as a whole, but also the service that, mm-hmm. that takes place. And it, don't get me on uh, incense. I go to a Latin mass and they just incense the place up and I love oh, yeah. it. <laughs> I, just, uh, I, I love when they do that. Um, mm-hmm. We come home smelling like it and I'm like, Oh, I'll just take mass with me. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, we're close to, um, Towards the end, we've been going for about an hour, and I like to ask this this question to make sure I don't miss it. Um, mm. What practice have you undertaken that you think has improved your spiritual life? And then maybe like advice for that people are listening of how they can improve their spiritual life if they can take this practice from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing, uh, like the rosary, uh, but I feel like that's, you know, a pretty commonly known one. Uh, so maybe I'll do something that's maybe not as common that I've tried to practice more. And that would be, uh, integrating religious art. Uh, so like I have, I mean, you can sort of see it behind me. It's mm-hmm. not very clear, but I have, you know, a sort of, uh, little prayer corner in my office that has, you know, different, uh, images. They're from the rosary actually. So they're the different mysteries, but also some other images. And, um, I've just found, uh, like, obviously, you know, around a home, you could have pictures of your family, you know, different landscape photos or whatever. But I found religious art to be particularly inspiring because it's, even if it's just like the picture of a saint or a scene from the Bible, there's something in there that that can be very uh, evocative that can cause us to pause and reflect on something. Like, I remember long before I even vaguely considered converting out of the Church of the Nazarene. I was working as a window cleaner, and one of our clients was a bishop. And so we would clean the windows in his... um, I don't know what the bishop's house is called, actually. Is there a certain name for that? This is part of that Catholic culture I'm still trying to understand. But it was his house. It was where he lived. And there was art all over the place. Like, there were statues everywhere. And it was super annoying when I was cleaning the inside of his house because there was nowhere I could go where I didn't feel God's presence. And it was annoying because I felt like I was like (laughs) being watched. But after a while, like when I left, uh, I actually missed it because it was that constant awareness of the supernatural. And it was that constant awareness uh, and reflection of uh, like, who am I? Like, what, what am I doing? Am I making good decisions? Like, am I actually you know, being Christ in the world, um, just forcing these very serious questions and reflections on me, just, you know, from a scene of, uh, like Jesus walking on the water to the disciples in a boat. Um, that one sticks out to me for some reason as one that I just, I kept looking at while I was going throughout the house. And then I went home and we don't have, we didn't have any pictures like that. And I was like, I need to get some religious images here because I realized it was so easy to forget those things, to just go through life 
and just sort of focus on whatever it is you're doing right now. There's nothing that's calling your attention to something greater. Uh, so I would say uh, try to find a way to integrate uh, religious art in some way into your life. That's a good suggestion. I wish, I, I feel like we need religious art everywhere in today's society yeah. with everyone needs to be reminded of God <laughs> and of what Christ did for us. Today's society is just crazy, but uh, that's yeah. the good suggestion. Rosary, uh, obviously that's a classic one, but mm. I love the rosary as well. I need to get me some more religious art in general. I need to have like just a, like a little frame of the, the family. Um, over there <laughs> you can't see it but yeah i need a lot more you have a nice little, little wall going on I, I need to thank you maybe take some inspiration from you but thanks ben uh for coming on this was very enlightening for me i appreciate you coming on so late uh i know it's uh probably it was we had to work around schedules but but i really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me uh and be on my uh, little podcast yeah, thank you very much for having me i appreciate it Hey guys, thank you for watching this video. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. I always enjoyed all the interviews that I do. If you are new to this channel or this podcast, please subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel, whichever way you're watching it. If you are on podcast platforms, listen up, listen. I would like you to subscribe, obviously, and then leave the podcast a five-star review, whether you are on Spotify or whether you are on Apple Podcasts. That helps the podcast grow. And as always, just share this podcast with your friends and family. Also, share this YouTube video if you just want to share the YouTube video as well. If you're here on YouTube, that is the best way we can grow this community as a whole. And go to adambuckingham.locals.com if you want to join the community and also support the podcast. So hopefully we can do bigger and better things and have bigger and better interviews, and I can interact with with all of you all on a one-to-one -one basis. So go do that. And until next time, I hope you have a blessed week. Bye.